Good morning and greetings to each of you. You know, uh, when you come, when you hear about 1 Corinthians 13, that's probably uh, the most well-known portion of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. It's known as the love chapter. Um, it's frequently referenced at weddings around Valentine's Day and times like that. <clears throat> and I would say that it is even a literary masterpiece. Uh, it's perhaps the most eloquent of all of Paul's writings that we have. But what is usually missed when this chapter is referenced uh, and is singled out is the context in which it is written. Um, the Corinthian church was experiencing significant problems that Paul is addressing throughout this letter. There were divisions. There was gross immorality. There were lawsuits going on between believers. There were former pagans and Jews trying to navigate what it meant to be believers within that culture. Their communion and worship services were discriminatory and disorderly. Spiritual gifts were being used to promote individual ambitions within the church, they were by far uh, not a well-functioning, healthy body uh, of believers. If anything, I think that dysfunctional would be far more descriptive of what this was. And so in the middle of trying to bring a bit of order and chaos to this church, Paul pens this beautiful chapter. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's far, it's, the context is far from one of tranquility or any kind of uh, idyllic kind of setting. As I was sitting here this morning uh, thinking about it, it almost seems, and I would characterize this really in perhaps the apex of this letter to the Corinthian believers. If the Corinthian church put into practice, if they followed this, these 13 verses, the way that Paul outlines it, that church would be radically different. And, and the problems of that church would largely be eradicated. And I believe the same is true for churches today. And, um, and so it is really that kind of a, a passage of scripture that we're looking at today, which... Uh, is a bit daunting and overwhelming, but also uh, exciting. So this is a chapter about love, but what do we mean by love? What, what is love? Uh, in the English language has distorted or uh, perhaps um, brought together multiple meanings um, that what is referred to as love. So according to the dictionary, uh, there's two definitions that I chose that I think probably broadly characterizes what we mean by love, generally the way it's used. A strong feeling of affection and concern toward another person as that arising from kinship or close friendship. Um, and the other is a strong feeling of affection and concern for another person accompanied by more of a sexual attraction. Um, and so those are two very broad terms that are generally characterized as love. 
Now, other characteristics would be that of simply um, enjoying something. You know, I love ice cream. Um, you know, it, it's just, it really has nothing to do with love when you think about it, the way that we use it. And so my question is, is that what chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is all about, these kinds of love? Or what, what is meant by this fact of a love chapter? There's a few words that I notice in these definitions from the dictionary. Feeling, affection, and attraction. And these are words of emotion. And I would say in today's vernacular, love is almost always considered an emotion or a feeling. Uh, at the time that this letter was written by Paul, there were two predominant Greek words that were used for love that would largely parallel those two definitions that I just gave from the dictionary. The first one is phileo, and it means an affection and often mutual interest ranging from general emotion to deep love, friendship, familial relationships, brotherly love. So that's, that's the phileo uh, love. That's the Greek word that is used um, to describe. There's a, that's the Greek word that's used to describe that type of love. The word Philadelphia actually comes from that Greek word, and it means the city of brotherly love. Eros is the other definition, and it would mean uh, other Greek word, and it would mean more of a passionate love which desires the other for itself, or a sensual love. And this is the Greek word from which we would get the English word erotic. Um, and so there's, so those are the two kind of definitions that I had gotten from the dictionary as well. But Paul is using a third Greek word in this chapter that's translated love or charity in the King James Version uh, here in English, and that word is agape. So there was three very distinct words within the Greek language, all which get translated love within the English language. And that can cause confusion because when you see the word love, you don't necessarily know which one they're always talking about. <clears throat> agape, just from a uh, Greek perspective, if you will, and I'm not saying from a biblical or a Christian perspective, would have, the definition would have largely been at that point to be satisfied with something, an inner attitude, a giving or active love. Now, that doesn't really tell us a whole lot, and I would even say that that's pretty, a pretty weak definition. And what I find interesting is that Paul, in this beautiful chapter, does not even attempt to define what the word love means, what the word agape means. Rather, he describes it. Uh, he doesn't define it, but he describes it. And what we see as we look at this is that it's not an emotion, but rather it's an attitude. What I find interesting is that the word agape, according to historians, is scarcely found in Greek literature prior to the New Testament. It was a Greek word, obviously, but it really wasn't found. And when it was, is found, 
it seems to generally be used in a condescending or a derogatory way, contrasting it with eros as the idealistic form of love. And so with this writing, not only is Paul describing agape love, but he also seems to be introducing a new concept of love that is completely foreign to Greek and Roman cultures and the Christians at this time as well, the believers that were here in Corinth. So this is not something that they were familiar with, but it's something that Paul is teaching them on, educating them on. And so then early Christianity latched on to this concept of agape love and I suspect even ended up influencing and shaping what it means today, um, and shaping it in something as a superior, although it's more abstract or philosophical than the other two kinds of, um, the other two Greek words translated love today. And so he's introducing this agape love in the middle of the three chapters that he's writing about spiritual gifts, their purpose, the idea of building up others in the church and the importance of doing so. And so I've entitled this morning's message, Agape Love is Supreme. Um, and I'd like for you to take out your Mennonite hymnals and turn to number 705 and then stand together and we want to read this chapter together. It's a familiar chapter and we have it in the back of our Mennonite hymnal. So let's read... Um, 1 Corinthians 13, all 13 verses together in unison, uh, number 705 in the Mennonite hymnal. <clears throat> if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For our knowledge is imperfect, and our prophecy is imperfect. But when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. So faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. You may be seated. 
We're going to break this down into three sections um, here, sort of three paragraphs as they were outlined there in the reading that we just had as well. First of all, the first three verses. But before I do that, I'd like to read the last verse of chapter 12. It really begins chapter 13 here. It says, But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. And so he starts out here says, I want to show you a better way, uh, a more excellent way of, of living life than what you have demonstrated up to this point, what you have lived out and so forth. And so he starts, I will show you. And there are several things that I think about this. Um, first, he's not telling the Corinthians what they're doing wrong, if you think about it. Rather, he's using himself as the focal point to show them something about himself. And he then gives them the courtesy of discovering these things for themselves. And so he's using the first person here to lay out, to describe. And this is somewhat of a shift for Paul in a lot of ways. And so he says, I'm going to show you what I mean. I'm going to show you a better way of thinking about this. And then in the first three verses, he continues that. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Uh, and again, it's in the first person. He's using himself as an example. He's not saying, if you speak this way, that it's meaningless. But rather, he's using himself, if I would have this ability. <clears throat> and so he starts in verse 1. You know, if I would have the most amazing gift of tongues... And remember, this is what was being really emphasized in the church there to a fault, and Paul was trying to address this. And I think that's the reason he uses this as the very first example here. And, and they were elevating this as the most important gift. And, you know, even if he had the most amazing gift of tongues, at best, it would just simply be a lot of noise without agape love. And Paul actually references the tongues or languages of men and of angels. Uh, whether this is referring to angelic languages certainly isn't clear from the text, but regardless, this gift of having the tongues or the languages of men and of angels would be greatly coveted by the Corinthian believers. And so, He's using himself again if he would have the most amazing, the best possible gift of tongues imaginable. It really would not accomplish anything. Um, it doesn't benefit anyone, and it literally would just become obnoxious in the absence of love, of agape love. Verse 2, he continues, highlighting... So this is really tying back to the gifts. And I don't know that I had ever really uh, uh, noticed this before. So we talked about tongues already. And this next verse, he highlights four additional gifts that he's already mentioned back in the first part of chapter 12. He would, Paul would value these higher than the gift of tongues. And so now he's bringing these up. Prophecy. 
It says all mysteries, which uh, I would correlate to the gift of wisdom that he mentions, knowledge, all knowledge, and all faith. And he really emphasizes this as well, amplifies, uh, yeah, uh, it's all mysteries, all knowledge, all faith. I mean, literally, where you would have all the, every mystery in the world would be understood by you. You would have all of the wisdom that is possible for man to know. You would have that. And literally, you would have the faith that you could throw a mountain from here to there. It would be humanly impossible to attain these levels of these gifts, but even if it were possible, apart without agape love, all of those things combined are absolutely nothing. They're meaningless. It really accomplishes nothing. And then he continues with his third example in verse 3, Again, using a spiritual gift, that of giving, to show that a person could literally give away everything they own. And all of us would say that that's certainly true sacrifice, even to the point of giving up their own life, of sacrificing their life. That would be, you can't give anything more than that. That's the ultimate sacrifice. But again, if you're doing that, without actually loving, without agape love, nothing would be gained in the end. You would accomplish nothing. I had to think of the verse in Matthew 7 where it talks about these people that say, Lord, Lord, but didn't we do all these things in your name? And in the end, he says, I never knew you. I think that's what he's describing here, is that it doesn't matter what you were doing. It is meaningless. These three verses, the way that Paul starts this out, definitely grab your attention. It grabs my attention. And he makes a very vivid point that about agape love's supreme importance. It is so valuable. Anything we do is worthless without agape love. The whole discussion about spiritual gifts is meaningless without agape love. And we can have the most impressive and desirable spiritual gift, but without agape love, it's all just a waste of time. Verses 4 through 7, then, gives us agape love's supernatural characteristics. <clears throat> Instead of giving a definition... Paul paints a picture of what love is, gives us something to which we can compare ourselves. He personifies agape love, characterizing it as a person and showing that agape love truly requires supernatural character and it's not our natural tendencies. I had never enumerated or counted how many characteristics are given here in these next three, four verses, four through seven. But there's 15 different characteristics given here. He just bang, 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 just lays them all out. And any one of these is humanly difficult. 
maybe attainable but difficult, any one of them. However, combining all 15 of them, I think we would all agree, is humanly impossible. We simply cannot do the 15 things that is said there in our own strength. However, through the supernatural power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, it does become possible. Each and every believer is called to model and demonstrate this agape love that he outlines here in verses 4 through 7. And collectively, as the body of Christ, we, are, we have the responsibility to live out agape love toward each other and those that we come in contact with. <clears throat> Just going to read verses 4 through 7 again and then we'll walk down through some of these. <clears throat> love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The first one, love is patient. I think the King James says, suffereth long. Patience is a more accurate, uh, or I would, I would say that it is more closely resembles what the Greek word means, but I will say that the word, the Greek word translated patience means more than what our modern understanding of the word patience means as well. Um, suffereth long doesn't really clarify that, but it does indicate that it's more than just simply waiting for something. Um, Lenski, in his commentary, defines patience as having to do with, and this is a quote, injurious persons doing something to us and not letting their ignorant, mean, or malicious actions arouse the resentment and the anger which they deserve. It's basically when somebody does something malicious to you, you simply don't allow that resentment to bubble up inside of ourselves that they actually do deserve. He continues by stating that this first descriptor of agape love is the godlike feature, enabling us to respond to the evil we encounter even within the church rather than a natural reaction of resentment or anger or bitter words. Agape love empowers us to keep calm endure, and continue to do so no matter how long it persists. That's a tall order. It's one thing not to immediately react. It's another thing to continue to endure that as long as it persists. Another... Uh, point that he makes, then agape love is not about performing wonderful deeds, but shows us how an inner heart of agape love looks when placed among sinful men and weak and needy brothers and sisters in the church. It's not about ideal surroundings of friendship and feelings of affection, but within those difficult surroundings of a bad world and a faulty church, 
where distressing influences bring out the positive power and value of agape love. So it's not about finding that right environment, but it's living within the difficult environment we may find ourselves by bringing out the positive aspects of love. <clears throat> Alan Kreider, in his book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, defines patience uh, in this verse as well as other places in the New Testament this way. He, what he includes, there's multiple aspects of it. It's rooted in God's character. God is patient, working across multiple centuries to accomplish his will. It's not about human control. It's fully trusting God for the outcome and not trying to manipulate situations in a certain way. It's not in a hurry. It accepts the reality of incompleteness and waiting as part of God's work. And it's unconventional, a mindset that reconfigures behavior according to Jesus' teachings in many areas uh, of life. And it's not violent. It accepts injury without retaliating in a similar way. And so this, this first attribute really establishes the reality that agape love is so much more than an emotional feeling. It's a choice. It's a conscious decision to respond to the hard things in life with a heart of agape love, treating those who hurt us with dignity and kindness even when they don't deserve it. It's denying ourselves and our rights. It's taking up the cross daily as long as it takes to show what God's love and character is like. And so this is really the foundation, uh, the foundational characteristic for the other aspects of love. Agape, love is kind, is the second one. And then he can, switches to eight negative statements. Agape, love is not envy. Um, there seems to be a natural progression between several of these next. Uh, it starts with envy, wanting something that we don't have, but someone else does have. Focusing on myself, my desires, what I deserve. And as an attitude of envy develops, invariably it's also going to focus on the faults and weaknesses of others uh, around us as well. Agape love doesn't boast. It's the fourth one. Envy often leads to pursuing that thing that we don't have, perhaps eventually gaining it. Then we, when we do achieve it, then we like to make sure others know we have it. We flaunt it, we brag about it, we share it with, on social media. We make sure that we're highlighting those things that we have, particularly if it's something someone else may want. Again, the focus is on elevating ourselves, making ourselves look good and diminishing others and what we could be doing to help them. It's not arrogant, number five. Boasting leads to pride. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Solomon said, pride goes before destruction. And I don't think we want God, we don't want to be in opposition to God in our lives. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Agape love is not rude, number six. Acting rudely, rude 
unseemly or unseemly is conducting yourself without regard for others. It's totally focusing on our own desires, our own perspective, our own opinion, our own ambitions, our own priorities, our own goals. And when this happens, it is literally impossible to see the interests and needs of those around us. It may not be intentionally rude behavior, but when one is focused on myself so much, we are simply blind to others' needs. Agape love doesn't insist on its own way. It's always unselfish. It's much easier said than done. Selfishness is the root cause of much of the turmoil and evil we see in the world, and I would say within the church as well. You see it between rich and poor, between whites and people of color, between Democrats and Republicans, between man and man, between church member and church member. You see these selfish things bubbling up. Lenski states, and this is a quote, cure selfishness and you plant a garden of Eden. That's a pretty strong statement. If you cure selfishness, you will plant the garden of Eden. He continues, yes, this is love. No envy, no boasting, no pride, no unseemliness, because it is altogether unselfish. Not for myself, but for others. It's not irritable. When we get irritated or irritable, when things go differently than expected or desired, that doesn't go well. When we're willing to take our eyes off of ourselves and focus on the other person, we can better understand why they may have acted the way they did and not become irritated. Agape love is not resentful or think of no evil. Resentment bubbles up out of wishing bad or evil on someone else for what they did. And it may be well-deserved, but agape love resists that temptation. It's choosing to genuinely desire goodness for a person who deserves the exact opposite. It's not resentful. Number 10, agape love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. What's our first reaction when we see someone having a difficult time that we have a hard time getting along with, when we see them stumble or fail? Do we rejoice, say, he had that coming? Agape love doesn't respond that way. It cares for that person, even during those times. And then he reverts back to a positive statement. Agape love does rejoice with the truth. Paul contrasts the not rejoicing and rejoicing. We're called to rejoice with truth, whatever that may be. The basis is truth. It's not who benefits from that truth or who is the beneficiary um, of that, but it's, it's rejoicing in when right things happen. The last four descriptors given here then shift again. And following eight... Agape love is not, and several things that it is. But he's saying for these eight things that it's not this. It's nothing of this. And now he exclaims four times, all things, or it's all of this. So it's nothing 
of this, but all of this. And the contrast is, is interesting here. So agape love is nothing like those eight characteristics, and it's everything like these next four. Agape love bears all things. Agape love believes all things, believes the best, chooses not to automatically believe the negative, hopes all things, endures all things. There's perseverance, keeping on even when facing adversity and obstacles. It's loving the most unlovable, loving when grossly mistreated, loving when falsely, mis mis falsely accused, I'm sorry. <clears throat> These 15 characteristics certainly show the supernatural aspect of, the, of agape love. It is humanly impossible to practice or live this kind of love in our own strength. It just doesn't, re it requires supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit to change our very thoughts and attitudes. And he's also reinforcing what he emphasized several times in chapter 12. Spiritual gifts are for the building up of others. It's not about benefiting from it ourselves. And then secondly, we are the body of Christ. And a healthy body is concerned about members working together for the good of everyone. And there's not room for selfish agendas, which lead to cancer within the body. <clears throat> The remaining verses, Paul emphasizes the enduring nature of love. It doesn't end. It doesn't fail. It continues into eternity. Spiritual gifts, which again is what he's been talking about, like prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, he mentions here, those will all come to an end. And as much emphasis as the Corinthian believers were putting on some of these gifts, Paul makes it clear these aren't going to last and even to the extent that these spiritual gifts are excelling, at best, they're, even, they're just partially revealed. They're a, very, they're a portion of what really is the fullness of those gifts even. But then he shifts again in verse 11 to a first-person perspective. When I was a child... And he continues with that as we mature, you know, both in natural human development, as well as spiritually, we outgrow the thing, need for certain actions and habits. You know, as adults, we no longer need to crawl around on our hands and knees, and we'd certainly kind of look funny at someone that did. Uh, you know, if they didn't, if there wasn't a physical reason that they needed to. And in similar ways, we mature spiritually, what's needed is going to change as well. And then at the beginning of verse 12, Paul switches back and it says, we. Um, before then switching back, that includes the, the Corinthian church, the Corinthian believers, and then switches back to I again at the end of the verse as far as being fully known. The way that the mere... Uh, that looking through a mirror darkly, I don't know, that's one phrase that is a little bit hard for me to necessarily understand what it means. One description that I've seen, heard, that I think describes it well and gives me a better picture or feel for what it is, given that we're still on this sinful earth, we are surrounded by a dense fog. We can only partially see what is 
and who God is. And at some point in the future, that fog is going to lift and be able to, and will reveal to us what really is and who God really is. And, and that's, that's what we can't see at this point because we're living in the middle of this sinful earth. And then he complete, finalizes this in the last verse. Faith, hope, and love. These abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith is absolutely critical to coming to terms with who God is and our sinfulness, the gift of salvation, and what Jesus did for us. Hebrew writer tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hope enables us to focus on the future, understanding and believe we have eternal life. We have the promise and the assurance of life in the presence of our Savior beyond this life if we have that faith uh, and believe that. But both of these, faith and hope, will cease to be needed once this life is over. Another aspect of this is that we, we receive something from faith. We receive something from hope. But with love, that's, that's something we give. It's, uh, it's different. It's, we're not receiving anything from it, but we are giving it. And so agape love is the one that will last. It will thrive and be perfected in eternity. It is who God is, and that's what he wants us to become. God is agape love, and agape love permeates from God, from him, into the lives of his disciples. I'd like for you to turn into your Bibles yet to 1 John 4. I'd like to read several verses there as I wrap this up. <clears throat> This really, John writes about love as well, about God and love in a, a powerful way. And there are several verses here I really want us to, uh, to hone in on and to help us understand a bit more of what 1 Corinthians 13 is telling us. And um, I will highlight these verses then, but I'm going to read verses 7 through 21 of 1 John 4. <clears throat> Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And just for your, um, this is the word, agape is the word that is used here in love. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know, and we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. 
And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from in, whoever loves God must also love his brother. There are a lot of powerful verses in here that just reinforce what we read in chapter 13. I'm going to look at verse 7 real quickly. And, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. What we can read from that, whoever does not love has not been born of God and doesn't know God. That's also what it's saying. Verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us. Again, if we don't love one another, God doesn't abide in us. And his love is perfected in us. Verse 16, God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. An interesting exercise. If you read through 1 Corinthians 13, substitute the word Jesus for the word love. Jesus personifies what this love is. It's, it's interesting to read it through that way. The church grows closer to perfection through practicing agape love. Ephesians 4.16 says, uh, it's talking about spiritual gifts where each part is working properly. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in agape love. This chapter was written to the church 2,000 years ago. They had significant problems they were facing, but it's written just as much for our church today. We don't have all the same problems, but there's certainly ample opportunity for us to grow in our agape love toward each other and everyone we relate to. It require, agape love requires putting others ahead of ourselves. It requires selflessness. It demands sacrifice. It contradicts all our natural tendencies. And it's possible only through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Let's petition the Holy Spirit to develop genuine agape love in each one of us. Let's stand together for closing prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for this beautiful chapter on agape love. And while it's beautiful in a literary sense, Lord, give us the power, give us the desire, give us the grace.
grace that we need to live this out, to exemplify, to model this kind of love toward those around us, wherever that may be. I pray that you would, in a supernatural way, fill our lives with this agape love and allow your love to flow through us to those around us, to our brothers and sisters, to those that we come in contact with in our day-to-day journey. I pray that you guide us, that you direct us, that you draw us closer to you as we seek to follow you and, and, uh, and love in the way that you want us to love. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.